This is Matters with Mel Faxon and Matteo Itzi. My name is Mel Faxon, and with me here today is Matteo Itzi. Itzi. <laughs> He's going to kill me later. It's Matteo Itzi for all of you Italian speakers out there. And we are classmates in the MBA program here at London Business School. And today we are so excited to have uh, Kevin Vakili with us. Uh, Kevin is an assistant professor of strategy and entrepreneurship here at LBS. And I think it's safe to say he's one of our favorite professors that we've had. Correct. Welcome, Kevin, to the show. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for having me and making me blush. Yes. You can't see it, but he's yes, blushing quite can't. hard. Um, so as, as Mel, I think, believe she mentioned, he teaches strategy at London Business School. He taught us in the strategy core course and also the tailored core as part of the MBA program, uh, digital strategy. It's a new elective. Um, and for us in our, in our cohort, in our stream, he was actually our first professor during regular term time. We had 8, 15 a.m., strategy class <laughs> on Monday morning <laughs> on Monday morning and I remember when the Pepsi case came up that I, I knew that there was a cold call coming my way because that's that's on my resume so I'm sure that Kayvon had researched that it's quite um it so turned out you don't actually work at the Pips correct <laughs> <laughs> I was in the Quaker organization and and we just kind of looked at them from afar like oh I wonder what it's what it's like to work there but um, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to start off with a, a, a set of, like we, I think we call them short answer questions. Yeah, hot seat, maybe. Hot seat, Just rapid fire. Rapid fire. Um, so, Kayvon, if you're ready. Of course, yes. Okay. All right. So, uh, first question, what were your first perceptions of London Business School? Uh, so, before I come, you know, I basically, the first time I came here was for a job talk. Uh, I was invited um, to give the talk to, you know, so that the strategy faculty, if they can hire me. And before getting here, they told me that you're going to stay at LBS. Mm. And the first imagination I created was LBS is huge. <laughs> it even has a hotel inside. Mm -hmm. And then I got here and they told me, yeah, these are the two buildings. <laughs> Back then, we didn't have the new Same. building or anything. So um, that was... My first perception because of the wrong expectations was LBS is actually pretty small, <laughs> which was correct back then. Mm, okay. Ashley, um, what was one thing that surprised you about LBS when you first got here? This is something that I'm not sure a lot of people have noticed, but there was there used to be a statue, kind of a yellow statue outside the entrance door, right to the left of entrance door when you're quitting the Ratcliffe building. Mm -hmm. It's not anymore there. That's actually a very famous statue by a very famous Persian artist. It says hitch, which means nothing. And those things are actually very, very expensive. Those are probably the most famous Persian statues in the world. Really? And I've never seen anyone standing there. It's like, what is this thing? <laughs> where did it go? Do you know where it went? I think one of the governors of the school had lent this to school, and oh. I think nobody appreciated it. <laughs> she or he it took was, it away. I don't I, know. I remember I, where it, it yeah. was, because it, it was in this kind of like like hidden corner, Hid, yeah. like a. It was behind the the uh, weather, uh, climate like tracking installation. Okay. Yeah. You know Strange. where the elevators of the Radcliffe building are. Yes. Yeah. Right. Oh, so right across right from there. Right outside that. Right. Like in the yard, basically. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Strange. Yeah, no, what they saw, but I, but I saw it. I was like, "What is this thing do here?" Like, um, I I also didn't know what governors of the school are at all. So. I was like, did LBS actually buy this thing? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Wrong thing to think. Um, next question. What is the secret thing about London or the United Kingdom in general that you really enjoy? Come to enjoy. Uh, I can't, so I'm not sure how it's secret is kind of tough one because... Mm -hmm. um, because what is secret to me is probably not secret to anyone. But a couple of things I found for those who are not that familiar with London. One is it rains actually less than... Toronto where I lived, but it's just always gray. So a lot of people have the perception that it's raining a lot. So it's for some, for those who have never lived in London, I think that might be kind of a surprise. I'm not sure secret. Um, the other thing is you can, anywhere you're in London, you can drive for one hour, one and a half hour, and you get to one of these old mansions that have now turned into bed and breakfast with some old 
kind of a lady and you know and <laughs> possibly if her husband is still alive kind of taking care of you in the morning and they always serve exactly the same thing in the morning but it's it's beautiful it's amazing if you if you have a chance you can find them easily they're mostly cheap and um and it's just one and a half hour drive away so yeah go cool. for it i'm sold yeah. yeah i've done that once i feel like there's also other shades of that type of accommodation where yeah. like i've yeah but when you hit on that, what you're describing, it's like, wow. I, this is, I did, yeah. yeah, this is amazing. We've done it probably like four or five times now, and this is actually pretty amazing. Much better than kind of the formal kind of hotel one mm-hmm. night. If, if, you, if you want to go for one night, these are, these are amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, last question. Uh, what would you be doing if you were not teaching? Working in a startup. I'm not sure if I would start my own at this point. Um, but I would definitely either kind of join early or join one of the startups I'm advising. These are mostly startups started by my friends. So um, I, I still get calls from them like, when are you quitting academia? And the answer is still, no, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, that would be kind of, I, I love that kind of entrepreneurship world and startup world. That so also that would sounds be like your friends want to hang out more. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Usually they send me to that other branch. That ah, <laughs> okay. No. Cool. Um, thanks for thanks for answering those. I think that we yeah. enjoyed hearing hearing a little bit about um, about you and your and kind of your journey to to LBS. Um, so on that front, uh, we want to kind of dive deeper into what we want to talk with you about today. Um, if anyone has taken your classes, they know that. You are passionate about strategy and video games, yes. which don't often seem like they're they're connected. But obviously, probably more about video games in the broader sense, right? Um, so why don't you take us back to before Toronto, before Canada, to Iran, and uh, maybe how these passions started? Okay, so I was born in Iran for. Those who forgot to read my profile Bio. when they were taking my class, which is apparently a lot of people. <laughs> we, uh, read, we read the bio. <laughs> we did. No, no, not you two. I'm okay, like, right. this is, I always get this surprise in my classes when people come in and was like, so what did you do before this? I was like, I did my PhD in Canada. I was like, wow. I was like, that's like the first line in my profile on the course <laughs> syllabus. You shouldn't say wow. <laughs> that's like a good thing at I this point. I definitely did that to um, a different professor. But... Um, so I, I was born in Iran. I lived in Iran, I think, well, I think because I don't remember it, not that because it's not a fact. Uh, when I was 25, I left Iran and I went to Toronto for my PhD. So I, I basically lived most of my life still in Iran. And um, I think that kind of getting into the video games first before getting into strategy, I think I was always kind of passionate about computers broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily games. So I, I remember the first time uh, we uh, we bought a computer. Um, it showed up in our in our house. I was still a kid, um, maybe kind of in elementary school, maybe fourth grade or something like that. And um, and someone was um, showing my dad how the Microsoft DOS system works. And I was standing behind my dad, and everything that was typed into that screen, I was like, wow, that thing does things. Smart. User interface. I, oh, wow. wow. <laughs> it didn't actually even have user interface, like just a bunch of text. It was yeah. like directory. It was like the IR. Yeah. Enter. I was like, wow, all of those files are on that tape. Was like, so it was, it was quite cool. And, and kind of another thing that relates to this is that I have three brothers. So I was either playing games with them or maybe for an hour a day studying. So that was kind of my life as a kid was playing games with my brothers. And then suddenly a computer showed up and then playing games now included kind of playing games on this computer and I was fascinated by this thing. The second fascinating thing about this computer was kind of a couple of years later, my cousin showed up who is a few years older than me and he was telling again my dad that you can actually program this thing. And that was kind of the second, it was like, wow you can actually tell this thing to do things. So kind of from a, like a 13-year-old, 12-year-old you know, boy back then, I was kind of like, my, like playing with my brothers, and you can tell this thing to do stuff. 
So if you combine those things, just those two things, just one thing comes out of it. I started designing games for my poor brothers to, to play them. And these are kind of pretty stupid games. I imagine the first game I designed was you had to make this ball escape this room, and it was like a hole, and you can just move the hole on the walls of this room, and kind of the ball is kind of moving randomly inside and kind of bouncing back and forth. And then I make the room more complicated. And I made them play this thing probably like for a week. Yes. <laughs> I think one of my brothers cried at some yes. point because I was forcing. <laughs> so there was a, de there was a defeatist, <laughs> it was like, like feudalist. I, like, <laughs> I was like, bent. play that thing. It's funny and it's fun. <laughs> and so I was like, no, they... I've done this. There's just like three rooms in it. Yeah. So, but that was quite, that, that's how I started. And I like, I, I, it, so I think it all started by designing really kind of puzzles rather than kind of becoming this kind of video game addict myself. I never actually played video games that much. My brothers played more video games than me, but I was really kind of passionate about kind of designing these puzzles for others and, and then kind of watch them, whether they enjoy it, whether they can solve it and all of that, um, which might now talk a little bit to why I'm possibly a teacher. Um, but that was kind of, that was early on. And then I started kind of, because of that, I started learning programming. Uh, I think I learned you know, Pascal. Is this, does it still exist? I think it does. And then no, um, we don't know. <laughs> it turned into Delphi, which was kind of like the visual interface and all of that. Visual Basic, which turned into okay. VisualBasic.net. I learned C Sharp a little bit later on. Um, and then kind of started teaching programming to high school students when I was still in high school because they couldn't find anyone in the city I was. And kind of that was kind of my that was my thing about kind of programming and everything. And then I went to university. I ended up studying electrical engineering for my undergrad and it was wrong because I didn't like electrical engineering. And that's one of the reasons I ended up doing MBA by the way after that because I really didn't like electrical engineering. So I was looking for something to escape. Um, and you mentioned <laughs> that electrical engineering or maybe engineering in general at the time yeah. was kind of a prized Oh yeah, yeah. So the reason I basically did it is that I, so in Iran, like a bunch of other countries, you take this national exam and then based on your ranking in that national exam, you can choose whatever you want to study in whatever university you like. And basically people are ranked and then allocated to these places. And uh, then there is kind of like an in science and engineering path. There is a medicine path. There is kind of like a um, other stuff like literature and law and, and all of that. And Iran, like many other countries in that region, you either go to engineering or you go to medicine or you're stupid. Um, mm. Nowadays, it has changed a little bit. So, so law now you know, is pretty good. Architecture is kind of pretty great. Um, but kind of for a long time, it was really, you know, you either, you either go to engineering or you become a doctor, a medicine doctor, not the doctor I came to. And then, um, and then I wanted to do a computer science. Um, my cousin was doing electrical engineering, and then he showed up the night before I had to send my uh, my kind of ordered list. And then he looked at it and I was like, are you stupid? And I was like, why? I was like, well, you can't go to electrical engineering with your rank and uh, and you already know computer science because I knew how to code. He, his imagination of computer science was m what I knew at high school. And then I was like, and then it was like, also, if you do electrical engineering because it's higher ranked and more prestigious, you can always switch to computer science, but if you do computer science, you cannot switch to electrical engineering. I was like, yeah, makes sense. So I changed everything to electrical engineering, and I almost disliked it from my very first electrical engineering course. But it made me kind of go outside the university a lot, and that kind of got me into video games again, because just one random day, someone approached me, one of my classmates. I was like, you know programming? I was like, yeah. Like, they're looking for a programmer in this company, which is founded by the graduates of this department. I was like, sure, like go there. And then the day after, I was programming for them. And then I became the head of the programmers. And then they took the, one of the very first video game projects in Iran. And I became the software manager, kind of the development team manager, essentially, in that video game thing, with a little bit of a background of I used to design games for my brothers. Uh, it wasn't on my CV, though. Uh, <coughs> And basically one thing led to another, and I started my video game company because I, I, it was clear that the business model they had doesn't work. And I thought I have a brilliant business model, which turned out to be as stupid as the previous one. 
But that made me take a bunch of people from that company, go out and start my video game company. During that period, I also realized that I don't know how to manage people very well. Like I, I, I love this thing and I know that most of the things that my value kind of added in the company is not about the code that I do, it's actually managing these people and hiring these people and promoting them, make sure that they really want to do what they want to do. Um, and kind of that made me also think more seriously about, oh, maybe I should get an MBA degree and that might make me a better kind of manager. And that's how I kind of went into that path. And did you see the MBA as kind of a way to stay within Iran or did you always think about going outside, going to Canada? No. <laughs> so I did the MBA partly because I was looking for kind of gaining those skills, but a large chunk of it was also because I attended this particular class called System Dynamics taught by uh, this guy who later became my uh, supervisor during my MBA. So MBA in Iran, by the way, the degree that I took is MBA, but it's really a Master of Sciences slash MBA degree. So we actually, I did a dissertation for my MBA. Um, um, and so Basically, I took this class and the guy was amazing. And for the first time I felt that, oh, I'm actually learning something beyond technicalities and coding. And, and then I talked to him and became his TA. And then one thing, you know, I took another class from, you know, from, you know, offered by the same guy and then another class from the MBA. By the time I actually went into my MBA program, I already had taken seven courses from the MBA. So they actually forced me to go out and find other courses from other departments because they didn't have enough courses for me to graduate. I found bugs in the university system, I guess. Um, but I never thought about kind of getting a doctorate in a strategy. I didn't even know what a doctorate in a strategy is. It's kind of the same way that a lot of MBAs nowadays kind of approach me and ask, what is a doctorate in strategies? Just more MBA? And I had no idea. I really had no clue. But the video game we were producing was based on the idea of selling it in North America, the game, on Xbox. Oh, so okay. we're going to produce it cheaply in Iran because we have the talent, but we're going to sell it in North America because it's expensive and take the exchange rate. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's gold. So I was like, hmm, I'm going to apply to a PhD program in Canada. I hope my advisors in Canada, former advisors, don't hear this part. So I'm going to apply <laughs> to Canada, and then I'm going to go there. I'm going to start my PhD. It's just a studying that I can be. I never have to go to university, but on the side, I'm really going to market this thing. And then I'm going to kind of manage my team remotely because that's how amazing I am. And then I went to Canada and I learned <laughs> I cannot manage my team remotely. Uh, PhD is really serious. It's not what I thought. And I kind of like this thing. Um, what, so what did you think, I guess, what PhD of the PhD is? program? Yeah, Was it a natural progression? I didn't, I really didn't know, to be honest. Like, I didn't think, I knew that it's about research. Mm -hmm. But, and kind of everyone has an idea of what research, like we, we read enough stuff to know what research is. Um, but it's much narrower than kind of what, like when I was writing my statement of purpose, the same thing you write for your MBA, I have to write kind of statement of purpose for, for PhD if you want to get admission. And there you have to explain what sort of research question you want to apply. Nowadays, we get kind of statement of purposes that say, oh, I want to know how people in a network of you know, this kind, how this particular individual trusts this other individual, given this context. I was like, wow, these people know what they're doing. What I wrote is like, I want to know how industries change. <laughs> <laughs> you gave yourself options. I was like, that's like, that's like, like 50% of a strategy. <laughs> like maybe like a thousand people are just researching different questions within that. Um, PhD admission secrets with PhD admission secrets, <laughs> but I, but that was kind of that's how I went, and yeah. then and then I kind of I quickly learned that oh this is the story, kind of one thing with PhD programs in North America and also in LBS and in Seattle and kind of the North American style PhDs is that they give you two years of core work coursework, which is kind of the intention is so that you become familiar, you get to the cutting edge of the knowledge, and um, and that's kind of how I caught up. And I think after one year, then I basically dedicated all of my responsibilities to someone else. At um, the video game. At the video game. Mm -hmm. And that's around the time, by the way, that the company got acquired, which is another story. Okay. I never, <laughs> I never got any money out of that. So, but you've kind of continued your involvement with video games. I did. Via... A little bit. So time. To, so because I, you know, because I was one of the, you know, part of one of the first teams that actually did video games, kind of developed video games in Iran, and then tried selling games on Xbox and kind of started his own video game company. 
kind of for for a while people would still approach me for either advising or kind of maybe helping with a project or two. Um, at some point, we even thought about kind of filling that marketing gap for people like me, like the former me, who had no idea about the marketing part, They're, you know, but they have development capabilities. And that's the case, by the way, with a lot of these video game studios, like one or two people, they're really passionate about developing something fun. They have no clue about the business side of this. And I was part of those. I actually knew a little bit more and still I was stupid about it. And then, um, and then we kind of, we thought it was like, let's kind of fill that gap. But it, I was too busy with PhD. Um, the other two people who were just, you know, helping me, they were busy with their own stuff. So it never took off. So that was kind of my involvement. And nowadays it's really kind of just reading on the industry and writing cases for my digital strategy class. So when was the last time you really felt stumped or dare we say stupid? stupid? Hmm. Hey, this, these were your words, not ours. <laughs> <laughs> stupid. So the last times are not going to be that interesting because so the two of you know, and the, my class knows, but now we have a 10 month old baby mm-hmm. um, and kind of a lot of the stupid things are really kind of in, involved kind of forgetting something because of either for him or because of him. So we have to kind of run out. I was like, oh, I forgot his dummy. And those of you who have babies know that that's kind of like hell if your baby is used to the dummy. Uh, oh, I forgot that toy or we forgot kind of the, the health book or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly because you're overwhelmed. So you feel stupid because that's kind of the most obvious thing you should have taken. And that, those are not really particularly interesting. I can tell you about the first time I felt stupid and that's much more f- interesting. Mm-hmm. Fun, interesting. Um, I, I think I was three, and I was I, I at back then, still today. Back then, I really cared about my brother, the one that was born after me. Mm-hmm. Uh, just we, we only had thir- you know, we only have thirteen months difference, and um, and I don't know what happened, but my mom was really mad at my brother, and um, she had come up with this sort of punishment. I don't know that you know Kaveh, His name is Kaveh. Uh, Kava, I'm going to throw you in the toilet. And we're talking about not the kind of the toilets that you see in the UK or in, in North America. We're talking about Turkish toilets or Persian toilets. Like a big thing you sit on um, uh, and you kind of squat on. Right? Yeah, you stand. And you then, stand. Yes, you squat, yes. actually. And, then, and then it's like it has this small hole in it. Mm-hmm. And um, so my mom was basically holding my brother. I was like, Kava, I'm going to throw you in the toilet. I swear. Something like that. I'm not sure how mad my mom was, but essentially she was kind of she was saying something along those lines, and I was standing right next to that. I'm, I, I very vividly remember it was a very also small room, so I was kind of I forcefully kind of went in, kind of standing right next to the wall. I was like, "No, please don't throw him in the toilet," <laughs> and I was kind of apologizing on his behalf, and I was like, "I'm gonna fix it." I don't even know what was the problem, <laughs> and I was like crying seriously, like. It was coming out, a cry, and, I was, and, my, and my, my mom, kind of like, remember, my mom looked at me and then put my brother down and kind of asked my brother to leave. And my brother, through this whole episode, was completely calm. Like, he had, I remember, I think he had his dummy in his mouth, and I was like, <laughs> looking at me. How old was he? I think he was like two or something ah, like that. Okay. He could walk, but just learned to walk. Mm-hmm. Maybe like close to two or something like that. And I'm like one year older, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I was like, and then my mom puts him down and is like, you go. I'm still mad at you. And my brother's like, and then he, and, and he leaves. Very nonchalant. And then, and then my mom turns, I was like, I'm, I'm now kind of stopping, you know, I'm, I'm not crying anymore. I know that, you know, my brother's forgiven. And then my mom turns to me and I was like, I'm looking, I know that something is coming. But I was like, I, but I, that, like that was not usual because he was the one getting punished. Why are you looking at me? And my mom is like, look at that toilet. And I looked at the toilet. And I was like, also look at your brother. Uh, I looked at my brother. I was like, do you think he fits there? <laughs> and my brother is like 10 times. Like even with force, even one, f- <laughs> like he, she couldn't even put the feet in. <laughs> I looked at the, and then my mom left. And I was just standing in that small room. I think like it was like 30 minutes. I'm pretty sure it was like 30 seconds, but it, it felt like 30 minutes. Just looking at the toilet, thinking about the size of my brother, looking at the toilet hole, thinking about the size of my brother. And that was like the first, I, that's my first memory of feeling extremely stupid because it was so obvious that 
there is no way my mom can put my brother in that toilet. I wasted all of my cries on a very wrong cause. And uh, um, yeah, that was a good lesson in it. After that, I don't think I cried when my mom wanted to throw my brother in the toilet. So that's the beginning of, yeah. of highlighting, or at least the realization point of things that were super obvious. Yeah. So you kept... I think it kind of made me think about... Like, I, I think that was the first time that I realized that threats are not necessarily enforceable, mm. to put it very mildly and kind of intellectually. Like I realized that some of the things my mom told to my brothers are not necessarily the thing that she's going to do. It's more of an incentive for them to not do something or to do something. And kind of, I'm a little bit older, and I can actually digest that. I don't have to behave the same way as my brothers or others. But I, I still have that memory. I think that's also my earliest memory of my childhood, except that's... for an image that I have from an earlier on that I'm in the sea on my kind of on someone's shoulder. That's the only other memory I have that is earlier than that. It's pretty young, three years, yeah. about three years old. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Just kind of going back on on that realization of, you know, understanding that threats maybe not be quite so obvious or things like that. As you moved into teaching MBA students. Um, what did you learn about MBA students and, you know, and the classroom dynamics when you first taught strategy? They're not a threat. They're not a threat. <laughs> <laughs> They're not your friends, but also not your threat. Um, it was, so I, I think this is the case with a lot of first time MBA teachers. It's not an easy thing, especially if you've never taught MBA students in your life. And then, and that's kind of the case also, by the way, with a lot of PhD students getting out of school. It's not that they don't have any job experience. A lot of them also have job experience. It has nothing to do with the fact that they are kind of academics, but the fact that they never thought MBA students. Even if PhD students usually get a chance of teaching, it's mostly with undergrads, and we're talking about two different beasts here. So, you know, teaching here strategy was, you know, the first time I actually taught uh, MBA students at London Business School. And it's kind of scary. I, I don't think I was a scared kind of in a... Usually, like, I don't get scared easily. I also don't get stressed a lot. Maybe I internalized part of it. Um, but it wasn't easy um, the first time. And this is about MBA students as a whole. I'm, I'm going to get into the LBS sure. part of it. Um, partly because it's, it's large and it's diverse. That's, and you kind of feel that these people know more than you. And you go into class and I was like, I'm supposed to teach you. On the one hand, you know, it's obvious, right? Five forces. You know, what, how can you stay for three hours in a class? And it's like, yes, there are five forces. And they are important. <laughs> and then kind of it, it requires that sort of confidence that, yes, there is something about the simplicity of it, but actually using it is difficult. And I'm, I can actually show you that it's difficult. And, um, and I didn't have that skill, to be honest, when I started. Um, and then kind of everyone asks all sorts of questions. The class can go in so many different ways if you, can manage, if you can't manage it. You kind of your. This is your first time. You're wondering if you can pronounce the names correctly. Uh, what if someone kind of stands up and say you're stupid? That's a stupid. I'm gonna leave this class. How do you handle that? Um, so there are kind of a lot of things that you have never seen in your life, and you kind of you you want to be prepared, but there is no way to kind of be completely prepared for it. So th so that's kind of the broadly teaching MBAs is difficult. Over time, you, you most people learn it. Right? Um, I I think my first two years. If kind of if there are students from my first two years of strategy nowadays, when you say kind of I'm one of your favorite, I'm not sure if you're kind or, or you're serious, one of your favorite professors, they would they would not believe it probably because I wasn't a good teacher back then. Like it was it was kind of a different course content, but also I, I didn't know how to manage the class. Not that I didn't know what the content is. I you know my knowledge of the content has increased, but not so substantial that suddenly I know how to teach something. And back then I had no clue what this thing I'm teaching. Um, so I learned a little bit how, how to become a better teacher. But about kind of LBS, I think LBS, MBA students, and this is based on kind of a couple of, you know, reference points, so I might be completely wrong. But um, I think they are a little bit more, they're a little bit more difficult than kind of the usual MBA crowd, partly because it's extremely diverse. And I don't think any North American school, I'm not sure about INSEAD class, but I don't think any North American school has the level of diversity that, that LBS has. That was one of the, by the way, one of the surprising things about LBS I learned was we only have about 8% British people in it. Yeah, yeah. So kind of my imagination was I'm going to go into a class with kind of a bunch of British people and a bunch of kind of European students. And that was completely wrong also. Um, 
I should have asked that, by the way, in the interview. <laughs> um, but essentially, kind of, this, is, this is a massively diverse class. And the other aspect of it is that it's not, because there is no majority, there is no coherent culture in the class. So if you, for example, if you teach in a lot of these North American schools, when majority are American, I mean, kind of meaningful majority, right? Our majority is also American, I guess. But this is not a meaningful majority in the sense of dominating the culture of the class. Or if you, you know, if you teach in kind of a very particular European country, then the majority, like in Italy, mm-hmm. the majority would be Italian. And you're, you're aware of the culture of Italy if you're from that context. And you know how to kind of deal with people and read the clues and all of that. Here, we don't have, especially in the first year, there is no dominant culture of kind of nationality in the class, which makes things difficult, I think, for the teacher to also read the class, to learn how to read the class and how to manage the class. But also, it kind of creates some dynamics in the class that I'm not sure if, I'm, I'm guessing some level of it happens everywhere. But for example, you know, students trying to know each other, establishing kind of relationships, showing some people, you know, starting to show how cool they are, some people trying to show how intellectual they are. So... <laughs> It's kind of, it's a lot of a... You're looking at me a little bit too forcefully. <laughs> I'm trying to look in the middle. <laughs> um, but really, like, this is, this becomes a signaling game, especially kind of in the first four or five weeks of your kind of serious MBA program, right? And it's like, oh, that the, that's the cool guy in the class, and this guy has followers, and that, that woman is really smart, and that woman asks really smart questions. And that's, that's a lot of it is not for the purpose of the course necessarily. A lot of it is just because you're forming your network. And that kind of dynamic next to the fact that you don't know, you know, the, the, the dominant culture and the kind of the diversity of the class, that makes it a little bit difficult. It also kind of creates a lot of unexpected sort of situations. I actually had one incident, someone telling me that's bullshit in my class. <laughs> I was like, well, can you explain it more? It was around the time I was confident enough to ask, hmm, what do you mean? <laughs> um, it was a, I think, I don't remember, Russian, some some person and then he by the way he later on came and was like oh thank you for giving me that answer i was like okay (laughs) (laughs) you shouldn't say that's bullshit anymore though um but that's also the thing like we also have kind of people from cultures that are much more direct compared to the north american direct in the sense of not shying away from saying that's bullshit i don't think i'm do you know that happens in i i think maybe not quite with that language but i think people will challenge for sure. Challenging, I think, is fine. I think it's also throwing you off by saying it's like you're bullshitting or (laughs) that's a stupid or kind of challenging your authority in the class. And over time, I think you you kind of, you manage a lot of these things. I think what changed over time was I don't know more than most of my students. What I really know is to ask the right question. And that's kind of, that's my class. If, you know, if you've come to my class, you know, I basically ask questions. Like if you tell me an answer, if you give me an answer and it doesn't quite make sense, I will ask you more questions. And that's that's the skill I developed during my PhD, and that's the skill that I run my class with. So on that note of you asking questions, I think that, you know, one of the things I wanted to learn from you after having taken your classes, both the strategy course and digital strategy, was about your kind of tactics on classroom discussion, facilitation, things like that. I think of all of the first core courses that in the MBA program that we take, uh, yours was the one that after the first session everyone realized that they had to read the case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they had to be prepared for anything, not, and not the least of which the people in the class that had some sort of industry experience. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, yourself and a few other professors did this, but I think you might um, be the most notorious for cold calling in class. So do you think that that's one of the more effective ways of kind of keeping students on their back foot or... You know, have you found other things that are more effective? So sometimes I do more cold calling. Sometimes I do less. It's kind of more of the mood of the class. If I if I see people kind of engaging enough, I usually don't do cold calling. But I also have to find the right target for kind of... I usually, if you've been in my class, so I usually cold call at the beginning of the class and at the beginning of the second part of the half. class, mm-hmm. uh, second half of the class. And um, and uh, you were one of my... T- I don't think I ever cold called you. I don't think I ever had relevant industry experience. <laughs> The fact that you remember that, though, is, yeah. like, You know what more... is my most hilarious cold calling thing? Kind of on reading... So, this is this is what, what I do, by the way. So, one thing I learned is kind of knowing students a little bit more than usual helps a lot with getting that context. Mm. Because people ask you questions from where they come from, mm-hmm. right? And knowing where they come from 
you can interpret the question much more efficiently than trying to guess what that person means. Because that's kind of that's a challenge with teaching something like a strategy. You want the class to go somewhere, right? Because you're not going to go in and say these are the five forces and you know buy and practice it, right? You want the class to get to the five forces and realize that oh, it's a lot about practicing and there are, there's a lot of nuance about it. But because they still don't know the, the end point, the questions do not necessarily get there, right? If you answer the questions the way they are asked, you know you might go anywhere. So it's a lot of kind of guessing what the question is really about. How is it related to that? to where you want to get the discussion to and then maybe kind of rewarding the question um, or kind of the way that you're answering it kind of answering kind of adding another question to that question adding a broader question that kind of removes the specificity of the context that someone asks and kind of make it broader so these are the things that you do kind of to your point of what are the tags these are the things you do to kind of make sure that the question gets to the point that generally you want to go but I realized kind of over time that actually knowing kind of where students come from kind of helps. And here's a little bit of a secret. I'm actually very bad with names. Right? I don't remember people's names. Right? I'm very good with images. Like I remember people's faces. Um, so I usually what I do is that because I'm good with kind of with the visual presentation, I remember where each person is sitting. That's why I always at the beginning also say if you move around, I don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> and some people kind of try to challenge me on that. Um, but basically, like, I know that, oh, this person sitting there, if I remember the name, I usually, kind of the first session I usually do, right? Um, I was like, male sitting there. I was like, oh, I remember that, you know, also that piece that I read about, oh, you know, she, she worked in this company or he worked in that company. So that's kind of, that's how I remember people. Right? Mm -hmm. So it can also lead to very, very weird, you know, funny moments because, like, you write Pepsi, but you didn't really work at Pepsi, <laughs> right? So this person wrote that um, he worked at... Air India, Indian student, and it was my, uh, it was the EasyJet Ryan. Okay, place. yeah. So it was like, he was like the easy target, right? He was like, so I turned to this guy, I don't remember his name. I turned to this guy, I was like, so you worked in Air India? And everyone laughed. But I, I was like, I was not on that joke. So I was like, okay, I'm, these are the sort of situations you kind of, you just laugh a little bit, but you don't let it go, right? I was like, so what do you think about it? And I kept going back to this guy as like the expert from the industry. <laughs> and at the end of the class, he came to me and was like, I should have probably mentioned it when you said that you work for Air India. I did, but I was in the cricket team. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked him about the utilization hours and loud factor and how people generally in air, you know, airline industry does the pricing. And the guy actually tried yeah. to answer all of those questions. How did he do? How did he do? Very bad. <laughs> But he tried. I was like, yeah, this guy coming from Air India doesn't know anything about airlines. What's going on? But I was like, oh, he worked in the cricket team. So, yeah, that's that also, that sort of things happen. What was the question again that I was supposed to answer? No, no, just in general, how do you, yeah, how you, and I think you answered it pretty well. It's, it's the fact that, like, okay, some class, some different types of subject matter, it's very hard to cold call, cold call people. Yeah. Um, especially if you know that it's a very, very dense material, yeah. but I think, you know, I, I don't know what you think, Mel, like, I mean, just, you know, not to kind of put this out there for all other professors listening in, but I, I always read cases where I knew I could get cold called. And I think it's, I think it's good because that like there's, there's a shame of not being able to answer for yeah. me. And I, and I wanted to be able to participate in those classes, um, so yeah, I kind of, I always liked it. It's a double-edged sword, yeah. to be honest, because on the other hand, like I remember in the NBOC class sometimes, I was like, um, so what's the answer to this? Like, I haven't read the case. I was like, hmm, you're too honest. <laughs> yes. But the double-edged double sword of it, part of it is that some students, you know, there, there are reasons that you might not read the case. Like, you know, you, you were in the emergency room last night. Usually people come to me and say, look, I, I haven't read the case. This happened. But like I understand some people just don't have time. This is recruitment season. You have to prioritize things. So it's not also easy for the faculty to cold call people. Like watching someone not being able to answer something is not nice. Like we, you, all of us avoid it because that moment of silence is not comfortable for anyone. One thing as a faculty you learn is to be comfortable with that moment of, more comfortable with that moment of silence. Back in the days when I started teaching, I would also kind of get a stress if you get a stress. I was like, oh, I, I asked the wrong person. You're feeling bad. I'm feeling bad now. <laughs> Nowadays, I'm, I'm, and because I feel comfortable, I think students also feel a little bit more comfortable. It's like, it's fine not knowing. In fact, in most of my questions, when I ask, most people don't know the answer. Um, 
but I think cold calling has that at least some people in the class would kind of read. And then mm -hmm. part of the shame is you see all the other people contributing and actually coating the case and you don't even know, you know, what the content of the case is. And that kind of forces people to read a little bit more. So how do you think this has changed now with your experience moving from the core, you know, to digital? the first September of the, of the entire two-year program, you're getting these students in the core, but now you're kind of shifting your, your teaching to an elective where people, you know, students choose to, to yep. take the digital strategy course out of a, out of a set menu of different, um, different tailored core courses. Does it, are you changing a little bit of your strategy? And so this is the tactics? second year I'm teaching it, my tactics. The second year I'm teaching it, uh, the first year had this kind of special situation which I knew at least half of the class in each because I, I taught two of the streams. Mm -hmm. And then I had, you know, we had about 400 students. I was teaching two streams of digital strategy. So about half of the people in my class I knew, which was great because that, that's, that creates a dom that brings the dominant culture I created in my strategy class that those people will bring it into the class and kind of the dynamics are there. Uh, the difference this year is that I only taught one stream of strategy. So 80% of the students in my class, I don't know, right? And, uh, and that creates kind of a different, and also students don't know each other. Like we have a larger cohort now compared mm -hmm. to last year, um, which kind of makes, makes me kind of not, so I used to be much more comfortable last year when I went into the digital strategy class because I already knew a lot of people, I knew their backgrounds, I knew how to kind of call them, I knew how to behave with each person personally. Um, but now I don't know the class and, and I have 400 students in kind of in a span of three months. And it's kind of difficult, it's also the busy time of the year for a lot of kind of research activities. Um, so I'm kind of, it's like fresh going into a new class for me rather than kind of the strategy which, so the course is kind of fresh the students are fresh. So it's a little bit more challenging, actually. And this is a course that we're developing as we go, partly because technology has changed, but also because there was no, nobody had any clue of what we should teach in digital strategy. So last year, we taught, you know, stuff. And after the class, kind of, we talked with each other, we looked at the feedback, it was like, oh, maybe we should change this part. And so this year, we wrote two new cases, updated some of the cases from the past. It means that, you know, some classes don't go as as you plan them because oh this bit that we added doesn't quite work or something like that um one thing i've realized is the classes are getting bigger and that that's not good for the dynamics so this year i have i'm teaching right now two streams of 100 students in each um and that's you wouldn't think that there's it's massively different from 70 or 80 it actually makes difference because oh, the class is full First of all, even one empty seat, you know that there is one person absent, right? So that's one. Um, but also kind of just just too many. Like, I'm good with remembering 80. I don't think I'm good with remembering 100 people. <laughs> uh, but generally, I think the one difference between this and the strategy is there's just much more content content to teach. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like the first session, we go through blockchain. It's yeah. not like five forces where we can reach to five forces, right? And then say, oh, these are, by the way, these, you know, the things you mentioned... You know, 40% of you have already heard about it, so I don't even need to mention it. But this is force number one, two, three. Here is like, okay, let me first tell you what is blockchain. And there are like four or five people in the class who might have actually known it deeply enough. So there is a teaching of kind of blockchain, or you not know, talking about AI. Let's kind of let's talk about AI. But most people don't in the class don't have that sort of working. Yes, everyone has heard about AI, but we not at the depths that we need for this kind of for this class. So there is also a little bit of a change in the style of I need to teach a little bit more. Um, so we're still experimenting. I feel like I'm borrowing a stuff from the strategy course, from the style I designed in the strategy course. Some of it does, doesn't quite fit. So for example, this year we changed the individual assignment and the group assignment. Okay. Um, in the course strategy, it made a lot of sense to make people think about the case ahead of time, even before you know the framework, because these are ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. Here a lot of the things are new. This is not kind of the, the, the run of the meal sort of stuff. So we change it. You, re you, you read about platforms, you learn about platforms in the class, and now you pick a company that is not discussed in the class and go and apply that to that, that company. So we are experimenting, and some stuff we have to change. Um, we see last year it went generally well, I guess, because now we have five streams in a software. Uh, we'll see how it goes this year. Cool.
So, yeah, the final thing that I just now was thinking about, we touched briefly on, not not right now, but last time we spoke ahead of the, the recording this, that, you know, you, you have classes that you're teaching, you're doing some things on the side with, with startups. Um, what about your research? Do you, oh. do you still, do you still find we that? Talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you didn't, not, not that much. Um, can you explain kind of the dynamic for at least in the strategy yeah. Yeah, profession? Yeah. I think I remember some stuff about kind of the incentives of the faculty and Correct. all of that, right? Yeah. So, um, so the thing that most people, or I don't know how many people know, I'm not sure if most people don't know, but one thing that I've realized that quite a lot of people ask and are not sure about is we are essentially mostly paid for research. This is a research university, LBS, like a lot of the kind of top business schools, probably kind of like a couple of exceptions in the bunch, but most of these business schools are, are research universities or research schools, which basically means you're, you're required to do something like 60% of your time you're doing research and you're mostly paid for that. Teaching, yes, you know, 30% of your salary is from teaching. And if you do executive education, you know, that, that, that's on the top. But kind of, I think about kind of the core of it. On the one hand, you know that kind of there is limited time. And if, you, if there is a trade-off that, you know, if you spend more time on teaching, you're spending less time on research. Um, and that's kind of, that's, that, that's a fundamental trade-off. So if you think about a lot of kind of the faculties who actually spend more time than they're required for kind of coming to a lot of these meetings, sitting with the students, not about the classes, like tell me about what you're doing, giving at the giving career advice, it's partly because they care. They're not paid for any of that. Um, and they're essentially cutting from the part that they're paid for. Um, it's part of the job. I'm not saying that they're, you know, we are doing anything or I or anyone else is doing something fascinating and we should be kind of praised for that. But kind of a lot of faculty that I know, they, they really care. You know, they, you know, they, it's not you know, like school teach and we're done with teaching, we're not paid for teaching, we're really paid. They really want to do something well. And it's partly because, you know, research is this long-term thing. Like, you know, we spent five years publishing a piece of paper that shows that this tiny thing that nobody thinks about affects this other tiny thing that nobody cares about kind of in a positive or a negative way in this particular context at this particular time and then that's how science moves right you know a million of these tiny things come and then it builds something bigger or one person comes and all the 999 others wish that they were that one person who came up with this obvious idea that nobody thought about right um and that's kind of that's that's our life but that's very long term right teaching is where you actually have short-term and long-term impact that you can see like you teach someone and then you get an email from kind of former students like oh you know I use this kind of platform model in this company and they kind of they promoted me to be the head of this new division I was like yay I, I get really <laughs> really happy that's the saddest part by the way of the teaching is I get to know you guys not not because you're my students like I you know we, we chat and we see each other but then you graduate and you get busy and you move to different places and uh, you know I'm busy with my research or my teaching and you lose that touch and time to time I actually go back and I look at kind of the list of the students that I've taught and I was like where is this person I was like that was an amazing <laughs> or at least where in the lecture hall they sat yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like oh yes well, what did I think about no I like I remember like the students are not you know my you know my a plus students but actually kind of students who were I, I liked them like they you know they they were fun to chat with they you know they had their personalities and these are this is kind of the fun part of this thing otherwise you know academia is a pretty lonely place and um, and then it was like time to time I wonder it's like where is this person and I was like if I search this person and then open their LinkedIn do I look like a creep I was like this faculty <laughs> is searching for his former students but that's kind of, that's the sad part of it that I kind of I lose touch with a lot of people that I really like. And during the class, you don't want to go to a it's like, I really like you. It's like, <laughs> do I, do you going to give me an A plus or not? Mm. Um, but that's kind of, that's the thing. Teaching is less incentivized, but actually that's where a lot of people think that they're kind of impacting other people's lives. Research is kind of much more profound and long term and it might never happen. Teaching, you can actually see them kind of go get jobs and hopefully kind of do something with it um and time to time you get these kind of nice emails of like oh yay um i recently learned that one of the colleagues in another university actually saves these little kind of emails and kind of in a folder to cheer up 
when he feels depressed, he just opens them and is like, oh, let me read some nice That's emails my former students. I'm going to do, do that, that from now on. <laughs> I, I saved some of the first, like, intro emails when we all joined LBS. People sent intro emails to the whole listserv of, like, who they were and what they did, and I still have a couple. Oh, of on the, <laughs> which are hilarious. On the discussion board. Yeah, on the discussion oh, board. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I, I wasn't I'll have to whip those out at graduation. Yeah. But <laughs> the initial dynamics of MBA program is so amazing, funny. right? Because nobody knows, each, you know, this is... This is serious business, right? You paid a lot for it. Mm-hmm. So you come in and it's like, you're energized and it's like, let's make the most out of it. And then I was like, let's send an email and introduce myself to 500 other people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mel. Yes. And I'm cool. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it said. It was what almost verbatim, said. yeah. You said that? You wrote I'm Mel and I'm cool. I didn't say that. Mel I, didn't. Oh, it, I did. I did. I think I was like the fourth or fifth at least. It I was our stream though, wasn't it? Yeah, or there's something on Facebook too. Yeah. But I'm not sure if no. I actually ever wrote it. It took time for Mel to start talking about us. <laughs> I remember. It did. You started talking, I think, session six or seven. That sounds right, yeah. actually. And then you were amazing because you, you actually read the case. I, I remember that. <laughs> well, it was the easy jet, right? It was the travel travel industry. Yeah, and, I think I had some. Yeah, because yeah, I, I, I think, especially having come to business school, like you said, it's very serious. Yeah. And wanting to have something important to say made me quiet for the first bit. And now I probably talk too much. But No, never. <laughs> Talking too much is fine, actually. It's faculty's job to make sure that people talk enough. Yeah. Mm. So I think the last thing we want to talk about is kind of summing up, um, if you want to. Yeah, sure. Just kind of summing up our conversation today is, and, you know, just talking about asking the right questions. So the question to yourself of, so what? So why do you think you are where you are? Oh, (laughs) that take a long time. No, that's actually a very short answer. I think we talked very briefly about this. I'm not sure if if it applies to a lot of people, but it applies to me. If you think about my life so far, there are kind of these are these chunks which I can kind of manage and plan. Like, you know, I came to LBS and I know that I have to kind of publish the stuff and teach well and kind of be a good citizen and all of that. And you kind of you plan for these things and you try to kind of do your best and to get tenure and all of that, right? But there are all of these moments in life that you never planned for. And it turned out that in my life, like a lot of these moments were so important that I never planned for the next chunk to come forward, right? So, you know, the, the PC showed up in our house. I never planned to kind of to start doing programming. Um, and, you know, it was, I, you know, a PC showed up, I was fascinated, and I started kind of learning. And, you know, I had three brothers, so I kind of started developing video games. Um, I, like, I, I don't think electrical engineering students are normally approached to kind of to work as a programmer. Um, in a, in a company, right? And this was the most random thing that ever happened. Like, I think I was in my first year and because I was mentioning to someone else that I used to teach programming in high school, someone else heard it. And a couple of weeks later, that someone else who didn't know programming was approached by one of these founders. It's like, do you know someone who programs? And the lazy person he was, he remembered someone from his classmate of 150 students you know, two weeks ago in the IT lab was saying that, oh, I, I used to kind of teach programming. And so he found me in the in the lobby. I was like, do you know programming? He didn't even ask what programming do I know? What language? <laughs> it's all the same. What can I do? It's programming. <laughs> like, go to this company. And then I went there and I started working the day after, right? I was like, I never planned for that. Um, even kind of MBA. MBA was a little bit more planned in the sense that I was searching um, for kind of the next thing that I want to learn. But I was just randomly selecting for a whole, for a whole bunch of things. Admission into the PhD program, the same thing. I was going there to sell my video game. <laughs> and then there was this amazing woman who was willing to kind of be my mentor, even, you know, even though I looked exactly like an idiot that I was back <laughs> then. And, and that changed completely. Like, I never thought that I'm going to be a professor at any point. Um, if, if you had asked me kind of when I was doing my video, at any point of time, if you had asked me what you wanted, I, w- I wanted to be that person that I was back then. It was like, high school, what do you want to do? I want to be the best programmer I can be. Video game, what do you want to do? I want to de- design the best video games. At no point, I had the foresight of saying, I'm going to actually go to the PhD. Pro- I'm not one of those kids when they were a kid, they asked them, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to become a policeman, and then you become a policeman. Never anybody asked me that question, by the way, when I was a kid. That might be the reason I never thought about. And that's, so, kind of what do I think about why I'm here? It's kind of like a chunk of planned time. 
what kind of this then one little or big thing depending on how you look at it happens and then the course completely changes right um it was the same thing with my marriage it was the same thing uh with kind of getting the job here so it's kind of and i never told anyone but when i started my interview here for my job talk my had you had classes with donald creeley he oh, teaches no, corporate strategy. Te- I global, have not. So Donald, Donald is an amazing person, right? And he's very, kind of, he's very unique in his personality. So, for example, whenever he interviews people, he asks a tough question at the beginning because, you know, he, he, has, you know, he knows the psychology of it and he wants to see how people kind of react to that. My first interview was with Donald after something about 36 hours of only eating one meal because I lost a plane um, in the middle, coming from uh, Iran, my mom back then had cancer. So bet- in between my kind of job talks, I had to go to Iran, um, kind of meet my mom. Uh, we just heard the news back then. And then kind of come here, and there was only kind of, I, I had to take Azerbaijan Airlines. Never take it. <laughs> Is it allowed to say here? But they basically, you know, the plane completely failed as it was going to take off. So they put us in the airport, told me that, you know, it takes two days for you to go to London. I was like, my think is tonight and yeah my dinner was that and so I was like I I searched kind of the whole airport there was one seat in Turkish Airways to go to LBS to basically to come to London and it was for a thousand dollars I bought my ticket for three hundred dollars and that 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 one was for a thousand dollars back then and uh and I got the ticket and I came here but it meant that I didn't eat for that whole time because I didn't have the currency the Iranian currency as I was in the transit area I changed everything when I basically went mm-hmm. into the first plane that failed. Um, and so, and also kind of on the planes, they only kind of served one meal during the whole thing. Mm. So I kind of, I had that, I came here 30 something hours. Um, I didn't catch the dinner, I actually got here at 1 a.m. I came to LBS thinking that it's a hotel, it wasn't a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no dinner here. And then they forgot to put breakfast and lunch in my meeting. So by the time I got to the lunch presentation, everyone was eating and I was looking at them, almost <laughs> shaking, I was like, I wish I could just eat instead of presenting. I had such a weird memory of that presentation that afterwards when I talked to my wife, uh, I was like, she, she asked me, like, how did it go? Um, I was like, I have no idea, but I'm going to focus on the next one, which is in <laughs> Paris, which was in Ashosa, actually. And, uh, but I remember my very first interview. Donald was my very first interview at 8 a.m., a hungry person who hadn't slept well. Um, and he asked me, um, so do you have any question from me? And that's usually kind of... A question towards the end of the interview where you have a context to ask that question. And, uh, and, I, and I looked at him and I went completely blank for one minute, partly because there was no sugar yeah, in my no, body to, kinda, to mm-hmm. turn it up. And after a minute, I asked him, I was like, so is system dynamics part of the strategy group or operations management? And this is, from any point you look at it, this is one of the most, this is the irrelevant, stupid, <laughs> doesn't have any meaning, has no consequence for my life, has no consequence for my research. Donald basically looked at me and was like, operations management, but they're not here anymore. And I was like, okay, how's the research environment? <laughs> and then when I asked that second question, I was thinking with myself, I could have started with that. Yes. <laughs> you asked the last question first. Yeah, so like, I never expected that I would get the LBS admission. But, you know, again, one of those things. So I was actually, you know, we were planning for, you know, something else. And, um, and then, you know, LBS admission came through. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people behind the scene probably helped with the case to kind of to move forward. Um, but that's kind of the thing. I, you know, you manage the life, but you can never plan for these things. And up to this point, me and my wife, life being kind of recently but kind of generally in my life even before getting married i've been kind of i've been experimenting with these things i you know something comes it's like hmm and then more recently i feel like now with you know with a baby in the picture and a bit a more established career how much i'm still kind of open to these little things coming and changing course so if you're if you're wondering what is what's next like what is the meta question in my mind that's kind of the question of how flexible i am now at this ripe age of 37, 6. I don't know. My wife knows better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we hope uh, there's more developments in the digital strategy course, obviously. Um, We're definitely happy that you are here. Yeah, yeah. we we got to be part of this point. Thanks. Thank you, guys. It was amazing, by the way. Thank you for doing this. I told you before we started recording this when we met, this is 
these are the things that I love that you guys do that because you're also not in any way praised for this. This, this is not gonna give you that job that you were looking for or well, you that you don't know, you don't that, know that yet. yet. <laughs> radio. Yes, maybe we're just waiting to be discovered. <laughs> pivot. We're ready to pivot. No, no, no. <laughs> you know. Not, no. What was pivot again? Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, this is amazing. And I and I've seen the students kind of participating in clubs and kind of doing all of these things for the for the community of LBS. I'm not sure if you know what that word really means in students' mind. But there is something about kind of the friendships that you develop that you want to create something and you want to kind of have something, you know, remembered from you. That's actually pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Mel. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yes. Course. Thank you yeah. very much for having me. And if you are if you are looking to um, take a take a course with Kayvon, um, please consider digital strategy. One of the best courses I took my first year. I at, would agree. At LBS. And feel free to reach back out if you were a former student. Uh, he'd love to hear from oh, you. Oh, of course. I told yeah. you guys. Right. If you have. If you're working on a business, platform business or not, anything, feel free to reach out. If I don't answer your emails, it's because I'm taking care of the baby, but I will definitely at some point. And uh, we would definitely chat. I'd love it. Excellent. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, and uh, see you next time. <laughs> see you guys. Bye. Matters is made by Mel Faxon and Matteo Itzi. It is recorded at the London Business School Recording Studio by Stuart Barton. Our theme music was written and performed by Matt Jackson.